So let me go ahead and have you turn to Colossians chapter 1 as we're continuing in our series, Ultimate. Uh, We are on par 4. And as you're turning, and you could also go to our app, we have the notes there so you can follow along, and then you could save it and keep it for later use, uh, especially if you have other opportunities in the future, if some of us are, are going to help out in other churches or other places you go to, uh, you can refer to these notes, and hopefully it will be an encouragement to you. One other thing is that I, I've been also very encouraged to see many of you who actually signed up and are participating in the Alive curriculum. And that really is exciting for, uh, exciting for me and also just our leaders because what we're seeing is that God is raising up people who are really serious about discipleship and who will be able to then train up other people. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is open up some doors for some of you who have participated in this or who are right now who will finish off in the next couple of weeks will be able to go on some of these shorter trips, maybe for a weekend, just like two days, to go to some of these different cities and to be able to share and train up other people in the live curriculum. And I know that many of you are probably thinking, well, we're not, we're not ready. We're just going through this. And that's part of it is once you learn it, you just have to practice it over and over again. So we're praying that you'll be able to do that. So let's be faithful. And like I said, you need to go to all five of those sessions in order to get the certificate and being able to then go to some of these places with us to teach the live curriculum. So hopefully you turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 24 all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. So I want to start off by asking a question and something for us to kind of think about as we think about spiritual growth. And the question is simply this. What is one of the hardest things about spiritual growth? I want you to think about this for a moment. Because I think all of us in this room, we want to grow spiritually. But there are always obstacles in front of us that hinders us from being able to grow in our relationship with God. And there are always hindrances. And so I want you to think about what are some of the greatest hindrances that are in your life. And every time I think about this, I I kind of always go back to areas where they're very similar things. For instance, if you want to stay fit, if you want to eat healthy, I realize that there are a lot of similarities with those areas of your life and your spiritual life. Now, please don't get me wrong, but all I'm saying is that if you're not very disciplined in some of these areas of your life, I could probably guess you're not very disciplined in your spiritual growth. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. The same muscle that you need To study and to be faithful in your studies is the same muscle you need in order to read the Bible on a regular basis. Some of you are like, not really. But just think about this for a second. Some of you love what we call cramming. So you have literally one month before that exam or that project is due. What do you do in the first couple months or the first couple weeks? Nothing. We just kind of goof around and just kind of uh, sit there and wait. And then all of a sudden, when we feel the pressure, then we cram everything in and then we study. And that's kind of like how when you look at your spiritual life, that's how it is. For weeks, months even, we don't do anything until that prayer gathering or that retreat or whatever it may be. Let's, uh, let me switch this. Let's try to get it fixed if we can. So, um, and so when you think about it, uh, we, we have this, hold on for a second. I don't, I don't know what I was talking about. What was I talking about? <laughs> Cramming. Yes. And so here we are cramming, and that's the same way with our spiritual life, where we cram our spiritual life, and we wait for that next retreat. And for some of us, it's it's, those of you who are working, you realize that there are other areas of your life that requires discipline. So I'm sharing this because when you think about spiritual growth, I really feel like it's about the desire, it's about the mindset, And it's a lot about 
the discipline. There's no way around it. Spiritual growth, it is the work of God. But it is also something that we have to cooperate and participate with God in order for us to grow. I was thinking, if spiritual growth was easy, then everyone would be growing and we wouldn't have to talk about this. Think about that for a moment. If spiritual growth was easy, then I think we wouldn't have to have this talk. And all of us will be growing. Listen to what Sinclair B. Ferguson said. He said that spiritual growth depends on two things. First, a willingness to live according to the word of God. Second, a willingness to take whatever consequences emerge as a result. So once again, it's that same concept. When we talk about spiritual growth, one of the first things that we need to have, as he mentions, is that you have this willingness, this desire to live according to the word of God because you believe it to be true. That you believe that it could transform your life. That you believe that it can impact your life in ways that you have never expected before. And then the second part is this willingness to take whatever consequences that emerge for it. That really is about trusting God. That you're not going to grow according to your own speed, but it's God who's going to work in your life. So God, if I'm doing all these things, doing my part, and I'm not growing the way I want you to help me to grow in, you're willing to say, but I'm still going to trust you. I still have faith. So this morning, I want to talk about spiritual growth in light of this passage that we see here. So as we start part four of this ultimate series on the book of Colossians, today I want to close chapter one and then start the beginning portion of chapter two. And I think one thing that will be helpful, some of us who are either just joining us today or maybe some of us, we have a short-term memory and we've forgotten what we covered thus far. So you need to understand that this was a letter. And here's Paul writing out all these different parts of this letter. And we just happened to break it up into chapters. But it was just one long letter that he's writing. So what we need to understand is the flow. Paul's thought logic of why he wrote this letter and what is he trying to say and so because of that when you think about it you could just kind of quickly look at it if you want but if you look at chapter one he starts off this letter by giving thanks to God for the Colossian believers and how they receive the gospel and now it's bearing fruit I think this is one of the most just joyful things that any pastor or any leader or anybody who's involved in people's lives, it could just be some of you who are spending time in LCG with somebody, is that when you see somebody receive the gospel message, it's one of the joyous things that you will ever experience in your life. And it's my prayer that every single one of us in this church will experience this joy by seeing someone that you invest your life in come to know Jesus Christ. But not only that, but someone that you invest in comes to know Jesus Christ, but that person is bearing fruit. That makes, in many ways, my calling, not that it's dependent on it, but part of the joy that comes in doing what I'm called to do is to really see Christ's followers, as you spend time with them, to be fruitful in their lives. They're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. As I'm discipling them, they're discipling other people. As I'm influencing them, they're influencing other people. As I'm imparting things to them, they're imparting lessons to other people. That's one of the greatest joys. And that thankfulness begins to exude out of your life. And here's Paul. And this is when I know he's a team player. He never went to Colossae, the city of Colossae. But he was still rejoicing and thankful that these believers that he heard about not only understood the gospel, but now they're bearing fruit. So after giving thanks, what does he do? He expresses his heart for them in the context of prayer. He prays that the believers will continue to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, in the manner worthy of the Lord. And as they please God by knowing him more and more and being more fruitful, this is what he's praying for. 
Don't just be content with just knowing Jesus Christ and being a believer. But he's saying, get to know him more. Be more fruitful. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of the gospel that you have received. So after giving thanks, after praying for them, he then goes into this whole section about the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. Paul talks about Christ's preeminence and how everything was created. In all of creation, it was created by him, through him, and for him. And if you remember from last week, I want to keep on reminding us of this, that this life is not about you. And until you can understand that, I'm telling you, you will quickly experience greater freedom and a greater purpose in your life. As soon as you make your whole life about you, I'm telling you right now, as soon as you face the first obstacle, you're going to crumble. But when you make it more about Jesus and about people around you to leave a, a mark or a legacy, then you realize that everything that you do is for those around you and for about Christ. And deep inside, it will begin to motivate you in whatever it is that you're doing. So today, now as we get into chapter 1, and then verse, as I mentioned, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 7, we're going to see more of Paul's heart for the Colossian believers as well as this topic of spiritual growth. I want to talk about that. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this. It is Christ who gives us our calling. Therefore, he will keep us from falling. Let me say it again, that it is Christ who gives us our calling. Therefore, he, it is he who will keep us from falling. I want to mention two things that we must remember about how Christ is the one who gives us this calling. So he will keep us from falling. The first thing I want to talk about in light of this calling is that our calling provides purpose. Everyone say purpose. purpose. Our calling provides purpose. And I'm going to go ahead and have us read uh, here in Colossians chapter 1. And let, let me just say this as we're reading this, I know some of you read it in various different translations. And uh, sometimes certain translations might be better than others. Uh, some of the translations that I try to use, especially in my sermon preparation, are uh, either the Amplified uh, translation or even the, definitely the ESV and the New King James Version. And, and then I look into some of the more of the colloquial translations, whether it's the New Living Translation or even the Message Translation. And so whatever translation that you're reading, I'm praying that you will understand the essence of what Christ is trying to say or, or what Paul is trying to say about Christ in this passage. So I'm going to go ahead and read starting from verse 24, and it's going to lead us all the way to verse 28. Let me just read that section first and talk about what the Word of God is saying here. It says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the world, uh, to, to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let me pause here. Can we turn down the mid-range a little bit? Uh, let me just talk about this as we are talking about our, how our calling provides a sense of purpose. First of all, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul mentions that he rejoices in the suffering that he's going to. Now, I want to pause here and just think about this for a moment. The question is, how in the world can a person say that? 
that they are rejoicing in their suffering. Now, when you give this some thought, you start to realize that people are able to go through some incredible things in their lives, incredible hardships, incredible pain, incredible difficulties when they know their purpose. Let me explain. Just think about the parent who stays up all night with their sick child or the parent who comes back from work and is exhausted and is still willing to spend time changing the diapers. It's not easy, but you understand your purpose. This is your calling. You're a parent, and you're supposed to raise up this child. That's why you, even though raising a child is difficult and it's hard, but you're willing to do it because there's a purpose. Think about an athlete who trains for hours, grueling, sweating like crazy, and it's difficult. But why does he do it? Or she? Because there's a purpose. Because they want to win that championship game. That's why they're able to go through the pain and go through the difficulties. Think about the student who studies all night for an exam to get a good grade to help their GPA. Like, it's amazing to see the amount of focus. Because once again, they know their purpose. They need to get that GPA to keep that scholarship. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes fear helps you too. Think about a person who works long hours, even does OT, overtime, in order to get a promotion. They're willing to work hard, go through all these things. Why? Because there is a purpose. So here's Paul, once again. When you think about everything comes down to the sense of purpose, what was Paul's purpose? Why was he willing and being able to say, in my sufferings, I rejoice? And I want you to understand that Paul's purpose was connected to his calling. Now, it is very important to understand what Paul is not saying. When you read verse 24, he is not saying that Christ's suffering on the cross was not enough, that he has to now suffer. That is not what he's saying. Or is he, he is also not saying that Christ's sacrifice or his sacrifice is equal to Christ's sacrifice. Because there's no way that his suffering is equivalent to Christ's sacrifice. So that's not what he's saying. What you need to understand is this. What Paul was saying was that he was willing to go through the suffering so the Colossian believers didn't have to face a lot of the suffering. That's why he said, for your sake. And also for the sake of the church. You know, I, I remember when I was working as a youth pastor in this Korean church, uh, we had an English ministry. And I'm so thankful for this pastor who really had an impact on my life because I was going through a transition, just coming out of college. There were a lot of other things that I was kind of still wrestling through with. And God sovereignly placed him in my life. And I needed somebody just like him to help navigate the things in my life. And I am so thankful because there was so much politics in the church, especially amongst the Korean congregation that kind of bled into the English-speaking congregation because of it dealt with kids, their kids. But I just remember, like, just the years that I've been there. I, I was serving there for about four and a half years, and I just enjoyed being a youth pastor. You know why? I would preach, which I love talking, so I would just preach the word of God. And afterwards, we'll go out to like subways or some pizza place and we'll go out to eat. And afterwards, we'll come back to the gym because that church, it was one of the bigger churches in Chicago. It would have a gym and I would play basketball for about four hours. And I'm like, I love youth pastoring. I said, this is it. Because that's all I did every single, every single week. Of course, I mean, we did discipleship and we did other stuff, but we're looking forward to Sundays. I just preach, we go out to eat, and then we play basketball, and then I'll drive them home. 
and then I'm exhausted. And then Monday morning seminary classes. But anyway, it was it was exciting. But I realized that once again, later on, that there are a lot of things that that pastor who was over me was protecting me from. A lot of the politics, a lot of the stuff. He was the one who took the brunt of all the stuff. And guys like me were just like, we love youth group. You know, life is great. But he was the one who was taking a lot of the suffering. And I was thinking about this, and I realized my experience as a youth pastor would have been so different if I had to directly deal with the senior pastor and all the elders of that church. That's why it gave me a little bit more insight to Paul's heart. That when he says, for your sake, I rejoice in my suffering. What he's saying is that I'm willing to go through this pain. So if that means that you don't have to suffer as much. And I was thinking about for some of us in this room. Like just from this one verse, like what what does it mean for us? And I hope you understand, and I want you to listen up very carefully. Like, like I said before, being in leadership in our church is not the easiest thing. We have a very high expectation. And we will train you because we want you to be a world shaker, history maker. But I will say this to you. Is that if you have a life group of 15 or 20 people. And every single one of these guys, let's say, which is all of us included. We all have issues. And if your leader is the only person that everyone goes up to, do you understand how exhausted they would be? Not only would they be exhausted, they'll probably be burnt out and maybe just not make it. And when we talk to any of the leaders, I don't think they'll be like, oh, gosh. We don't. But they're willingly, they're wanting to do it. Because this is their calling. So they know their purpose. But my challenge to us this morning is that if some of you have been in part of our church for more than three years or even a couple years, you already know our heart. You know why we do what we do. You've been on missions with us. And all you do is sit there and do nothing. I would personally say I have a problem with that. As your pastor, I'll have a problem with that. Because in your life group, there are hurting people who need to hear the gospel. There are people who need to be ministered unto with prayer. And so if the leader is the one who's going through all the suffering and taking on all the ministry and we're doing nothing, then I think something's wrong. If anything made this challenge us, we got to stop acting like a little spiritual kid and grow up. Because you're no longer a freshman. You're no longer the new person or the youngest one in that group anymore. Can you imagine? You've been with us a tenure. Oh, I'm still young. There's a problem. In the same way when you see like a 15-year-old in a little kid's stroller. And a 50-year-old who's sucking on the pacifier. Something doesn't look right with this. That's why we got to grow. So the reason why Paul was able to rejoice in his suffering because he knew his purpose, which came through his calling. Listen to me, and let me go through this quickly. Paul knew his calling. And he knew what it was. And in his calling, he knew, first of all, it was a privilege. If you look at verse 25 again, Paul expresses his understanding of how his calling to be a minister of the gospel and to make God's word known fully was given to him by God. In fact, he was just a steward and was commissioned by God. Listen to what it says in the NIV of verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Did you catch that phrase? By the commission 
God gave me. So what Paul understood was this calling to be the minister of this gospel. It wasn't something that he decided to do. If you remember, he was on a road called headed towards Damascus to kill Christians. So if there's anyone who understood that he was so unworthy and undeserving of this, it was Paul. You hear this over and over again in, the, in his writings that he understands that he was once a blasphemer, a violent man, but God has shown him tremendous grace and mercy so that he will be able to share the gospel. He talks about his weaknesses. He talks about the thorn in the flesh. There's no boasting in him. The only boast that he has is in Christ. That's why when he thought about his calling, he realized it is a privilege. Knowing that his call was a privilege, Paul took the responsibility to preach the gospel seriously and humbly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, I'm going to read it from the ESV. It says this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For it is I... For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What Paul is saying, this necessity to preach the gospel was laid upon him. God put that burden in him. And he said it was a, it was a trust given to him by God. Listen to what the NIV says. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. Can you imagine? If everything in your life that you have, that you are able to experience, you understood that it was a trust that was given to you. Do you know why sometimes when you serve, you start having a complaining heart? Do you know why sometimes you lose your heart when you're serving? Because bottom line is this, you feel entitled. You feel like you're doing something for God and that he owes you something. I know that's how it is in my own heart. As soon as I start feeling entitled, God, look at all the stuff that I've done. At least I can do this now. Then I, my, my heart is going in the wrong direction. That's why I want to challenge some of us who are serving in our church, whether it's in a ministry team, whether you're serving in a life group, whatever the case may be. And when you start seeing your heart get bitter or maybe you're just kind of losing that desire and maybe just, just you feel like, you know what, I don't really have to do this anymore. I want to challenge you to reorient your mind and realize it is a privilege. The scariest thing is that when people start thinking, oh, they need me. We don't need you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God is God. As soon as you start thinking they need me or God needs me, you're headed in that path. Anything that we have the honor to do is a privilege that has been given by God. It's, it's, it's a gift. It's His grace. Therefore, when we do it, we do it in that humility. I don't deserve it, Lord, but it's my privilege. It's my honor. And the magnitude of this privilege was so great because He was presenting the mystery which was hidden from many, many years ago, but now it's being revealed. Can you imagine the trust that he understood? This is a great honor. And the mystery is Christ in them, who is their hope and glory. How about us? When was the last time you felt this great sense of privilege of sharing the hope of the gospel? I think this is another reason why some of us, we just don't evangelize. Not only are we just focused on ourselves, but we don't see it as a privilege. 
that we can actually share this hope of Christ to people who are dying. If we did, I believe that we will start being we will start praying right now about some people that we would want to invite to Easter. We will be praying about some people that we want to be able to ask God to soften their hearts so they could understand the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. Every time you think about some of the things that you get to do and experience, do you feel this overwhelming sense of unworthiness? Why me, Lord? I remember feeling that when I was launching off after my wife and I got married, we were launching off to go to a whole new state, whole new town, a whole new place to start the church. And I'm telling you, I was scared because I was only like 26, 27 years old. I, I didn't know what I was doing. My wife didn't know what she was we, we both didn't know what we were doing. But we just went in faith and we went into that town to preach the gospel, to see lives being transformed so they could then go transform the world. And as we went, I remember one time I was just thinking and I said, out of all my peers, all my friends, I am the only one that, that I know just amongst my peers. I'm sure there are many other people before me and stuff, but just amongst my friends, I was the only one who was planning a church. And as I thought about that, I said, God, why me? And I began to feel this great sense of unworthiness. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm better than everyone. It wasn't anything close to that. It was just feeling the sense of unworthiness that, God, why did you choose me out of all these other guys? They know the Bible more. They love you more. They've been brought up in the church longer and all this stuff. But God, for whatever reason, which I still cannot fully understand, he decided to choose me to start the church in Michigan. And all I can say is, I still don't know. So not only the privilege, I want you to understand that part of the calling that provides purpose is that you understand the privilege of it, but you also understand the priority. Due to the privilege of this calling, Paul has a sense of urgency. And he made it a priority to proclaim, to warn, to teach, to help these Colossian believers to grow in Christ. Look at verse 28 again. We notice the phrase, present everyone mature in Christ. The word mature is translated as perfect. So to present everyone perfect in Christ. The New American Standard Bible translated as complete in Christ. Now what you have to understand is when we are perfect or complete in Christ, this simply means that we have become more like Jesus in every single aspect of our lives. Because in many ways, we are now complete because of Jesus. Can I get a good amen to that? Amen. That we have everything that we need, that God has provided for us. But this idea of perfection or even completion, that's why they translate with the word mature. That means that you are becoming more mature and more like Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Why is this important? Because for Paul, what he's saying is that I'm going to do everything possible. Proclaim. I'm going to warn you if I have to. I'm going to teach you with all wisdom that you will grow in maturity. This is a priority for me, he's saying. Because I understand that this is a privilege that I have. It's a gift from God and I'm going to make it a priority in my life to help you Colossian believers to grow. I think this is the same idea that the writer of James talked about regarding how the test of our faith will be will develop perseverance. James chapter 1 verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See this idea of maturing which is being more complete or perfect in Christ, a lot of times it takes the sense of perseverance. How about us? Are you prioritizing your life so that you can disciple and help people mature in Christ? 
I'm wondering, knowing your calling as a Christ follower, are you finding a greater purpose in what you do? So now as you study, there's a greater purpose because you're a follower of Christ. Some of you who are losing motivation to study, I'm telling you, if it was just to get a a high GPA, you're going to lose motivation very quickly. But if you're saying, I have a greater purpose, a higher purpose, if I study and I want to study well, that will give me a platform to share Jesus Christ to people in my classroom because they know that I'm a studious person and they respect me. So when I talk about Jesus, they will listen. I'm telling you right now, your studies, your grades will shoot up. You just don't have a purpose. And if you do, it's all about you. Your GPA, you getting a job, that's it. And if you continue on this path, you're going to feel this emptiness in your heart and purposelessness. And you're like, why am I doing this? Same with some of you who are working in our church. The working people in our church. If it's all about making money and keep on making more money so you can have more things, I'm going to tell you right now, Monday morning, you're going to hate your job again and again. If it stops with you, because it's all about you, then you're going to lose that sense of passion and purpose in your life. But if you're saying, I want to go to work, because here's my mission field. I can't go to China. I can't go over there. But I can go to work every single day. And here's my mission field. There's about 10, 20 people who don't know Christ on this floor. I might be the only Bible they will ever read from my life. And you get up in the morning knowing your purpose, your calling. And you go there and you begin to work hard. Don't steal the paper and all the other stuff. Uh huh. Making your Xerox copies. Uh huh. Work hard. Demonstrate that you're competent in what you do. Earn the favor of your boss, your manager. And amongst your co-workers, because you're not there just to compete and try to dog-eat-dog world, but you're trying to help them as well in a loving way. And then I'm telling you right now, in any given moment, there's going to be a time when someone in your floor that you're working with will go through a crisis in their life. Maybe a death of a loved one, or maybe just confusion, or a broken relationship. And who do you think they will turn to? The toxic person? No. Everyone runs away from them. They'll turn to you because you earned their respect. Can you imagine if you had that kind of purpose? You will get up Monday morning and be like, I am excited to go to work. But no, the work is all about you. Making the money so you can buy whatever you want to buy and do whatever you want to do and go out to eat wherever you want to eat. And so then after that, it's just get a promotion. It's just, it's all about you and it stops there. Our calling provides purpose. Come on, let me, let me go to the second and last point. Not only does our calling provide purpose for us, but our calling produces perseverance. That our calling will produce perseverance. Let me first read verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want to read it from the New American Standard Bible. Listen to what it says. For this purpose, also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I want you to focus on that phrase, for this purpose. Paul understood the purpose. And that's why he labors. That's why he's going to keep on striving according to God's power. That's working mightily within him. Once again, we are reminded that once we understand our calling, we will have a strong sense of purpose. Paul clearly states that the purpose of preaching the gospel, which was a privilege, and he made it into a priority, this is what motivates him to labor 
and strive. Let me just add this, and I think this is important. You have to note that it's not through human strength, but rather it's through God's mighty power. See, we, we live in Asia where everything is about you try harder. It's not about trying harder. I hope you understand. I, I, I'm praying some of you get will, will get so exhausted. I'm praying that some of you will, will fail miserably. Not just so you'll be a failure because you're not a failure. You, you're a person who fails. Is that okay to pray for you in those areas? Like, no, Pastor, don't do that. At the prayer, I should have prayed for, prayed for someone. Lord, help him to fail right now in Jesus' name, you know. <laughs> help them to get more exhausted. <gasps> like, I'm telling I, I think this is the only way some of us are going to learn. Just get more exhausted, more failings in our life, to finally come to a point where we will literally, I don't know, sit down and we just say, God, I'm tired. I, I, I just can't do this anymore. I've tried. I try to figure this out. I just can't. I try to open this door and it's not opening. I try to go in this direction and I keep on getting bumped back and it's just not working. I'm wondering if we need to experience more of this. Not because God hates you. Not because God is trying to punish you. But he loves you. He's disciplining you so that you can say, God, I'm tired of trying. I need you. A little bit more of you. That's why dependence on God, it really is an art. Sounds kind of weird, right? Some of you are like, I'm an artist, not that kind of art. It's, it's kind of like, it's a feel. It, you have to know, but it's like a feel. To really learn how to depend on God and allow his power to flow in us, it really is an art. The New Living Translation of that verse says this, that's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. This idea of dependence. I remember when we were in Michigan. Uh, someone came into my office and they were asking me this question. Pastor, if somebody was a Christian and then they fell away and they were in a car and they got into a car accident and died, would they go to heaven? And usually when people ask these types of questions, there's a lot of stuff going on in their mind and in their hearts. It's kind of like a test balloon just to see if Pastor Seth will pop it. So they ask these types of questions. So I, I, I want to make sure you understand. The question was this. Pastor Seth, if there was a person who was a Christian but fell away, totally denied Christ or turned away, and they got into a car accident and they died, would they go to heaven? Are they still saved? So I began to ask a series of questions because I'm like, did something happen? And I began to kind of probe a little bit. They're like, no, I've just been thinking about it. And the, by the time I began to ask all these questions, I finally began to understand that this person was struggling. And he had so much fear in his heart that as he's struggling and maybe even falling away, if something were to happen to him, would he go to heaven or not? Also, what I began to slowly understand and things got revealed was that he was living a double life. At church, everyone would think that this person is really holy. They love God. But then Monday through Friday, they were just living a complete paganistic life. Hedonistic, just all for themselves. They're struggling with the worldly things. And they were, I, I always tell people the most miserable people are those people who straddle the fence. Or who are both one foot in the world and one foot in church. You know why they're the most miserable people? Because they can't fully enjoy the world. Because there's that little conscience that says, the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing? They're like, oh, and they're like, oh. 
And they're like, okay, guys, I got to go. And they're like, oh, and you're like, just, I, I got to go. So they're not really fully enjoying it. But then here they are at church, but they're like, oh, my God. And just, they're just not really loving God. And they're just like, whatever. They're just doing the religious thing. They are the most miserable people in the whole world. They're like, if this is the line, they're like, right here. And so they, they are literally hating this life. One foot in the world, one foot in, in, with God, and they're just struggling. That's what I found out. So I go, listen, I simply said something that just helped them to understand. I, I said this. If this person is genuinely saved, then I believe by faith, even though they have fallen away, and as they're driving, they would have cried out to Jesus for mercy. But if they did not, and they never returned, then I said to this person, then that person was never saved in the first place. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Like, in our church, we like to teach doctrine. I, sometimes I don't tell you, this is doctrine. Every time we should have a yellow light that goes off. So, you know, oh, that's a doctrine. I'm going to clearly teach this doctrine because this is important for you to understand because it deals with perseverance and what Paul is trying to say here. I'm going to use a, a theologian, Louis Burkhoff. He, he wrote this book called Systematic Theology. Classic book. Great book. He writes this. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is to the effect that they whom God has regenerated and effectually called to a state of grace can neither totally nor finally fall away from that state, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the end. The denial of the doctrine of perseverance virtually makes the salvation of man dependent on human will rather than on the grace of God. End quote. Amen? Like some of you are like, huh? This is good stuff, man. Like after reading this, you could just like, fall on your bed and just go to sleep really well. What he's simply saying is this. If you do not believe in the perseverance of the saints, that that means that salvation is by human will, which then causes us to feel what I just described about that person. Because if they're not living up to a certain standard, if they're not doing all these things, then they're going to start questioning their salvation. Am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't know. So they have this anxious heart. But what he's saying is this. Salvation is a grace of God, a gift that you did not deserve, you did not earn. God effectually called you. Because you were totally depraved and in his unconditional election chose you out of all these other people. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for your sins. That's why his grace will be so irresistible. He will draw you. You will have a roommate who's a Christian. You're like, what the? And then you will go and you'll see something. And it's about like Les Mis. And the gospel is all over. You're like, oh, I love Les Mis. And you're like, wait a minute. That sounds like something about churchy thing. And you're going to start thinking all this stuff. And your heart is so strangely warmed. And then you come to a point where you have to decide either Jesus was a liar a lunatic or Lord and you realize he is the Lord and you cross that line nowhere in that process did you have any effect on that it was God's work listen to what R.C. Sproul said same concept but listen to what he says in his book chosen by God 
We are able to persevere only because God works within us, within our free wills. And because God is at work in us, we are certain to persevere. The decrees of God concerning election are immutable, which means it doesn't change. It's unchanging. Okay, they do not change. Because, sorry, I just saw immutable. I'm trying to define it for some of us. They do not change because he does not change. All whom he justifies, he glorifies. None of the elect, those that God has chosen, has ever been what? Lost. If you know that God has chosen you and you understand this gospel, that you don't deserve anything, but by his grace, not the person next to you, maybe not your sister, your brother, but he chose you. You cannot get proud. What is it about you? What did you do to earn this salvation? So when you realize it had nothing to do with me, it was all the work of God effectually calling me this irresistible grace. That even though you fall away at times, even though you sometimes have questions, he will never let you go. You will never be lost. I don't know about you, but that is the, one of the greatest securities you could have in your life. Knowing that you will never be lost, God will never let you go. Even though your heart is prone to wander, even though you sin, even though you rebel against God, that His love for you will continue to pursue after you. That gives me the greatest assurance it gives me the greatest safety. It gives me the greatest security that I don't have to try to control things because he frees me knowing that if anything were to happen to me tonight, that I could spend the rest of eternity with Christ and I would never have to doubt that. That kind of security, that kind of understanding is what we call the perseverance of the saints. You will never be lost because God found you. So as we read and start chapter 2, we're reminded of when it comes to perseverance, we're able to persevere, not only because it's God's work, but what Paul is saying here, first of all, we are able to persevere when our faith is supported. Look at verse 1 through 3. I just love Paul's writing. He's, he's just... Smart dude. Listen to what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to notice the word struggle. Everyone say struggle. You see this word in this verse, chapter 2, verse 1, but you also see it in the previous verse, in verse 29 of chapter 1. This word struggle can be translated as striving, agonizing, or conflict. And these words are used in athletic terms, where the runner would put a lot of effort in running this race, agonizing even, trying to win this race. So here's Paul saying that even though I have not met you face to face, that I am literally struggling for you. He expresses his love and his care for them. Then in verse 2 and 3, as we have read, we see Paul wanted the believers to be encouraged in their hearts and to be united in love for one another. And this will all come when we have an understanding of the truth and know more of who Christ is. I'm just wondering, how about us this morning? Do you have somebody who is struggling and agonizing and striving for us? Are there people in your life that are encouraging you and supporting you in your walk with God? Like I said, perseverance of the saints is the work of God. But when you have support of people who are 
praying for you, struggling with you, walking with you. Maybe your LCG partner or maybe just some other person that has been mentoring you, discipling you. Then for whatever reason, even though you want to give up, even though you realize you keep on struggling with the same thing over and over again, when you have someone to support you in your faith, it helps you to persevere. The second thing I want you to notice is not our faith is not only our faith is supported, but our foundation is strong. Let's close out with verse four through seven. Listen to what he says. He says this. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The Colossian believers were young in their faith. And it was so easy for them to get confused and struggle with knowing the truth. That's why Paul says these plausible arguments, don't buy into those things. And here's Paul using agricultural and architectural images to by using the words like rooted, built up, established. What is he saying? What he's simply saying is this. That when your foundation, which is the gospel, takes root in your heart, then we're able to be built up and established, firmly established, so that we can keep on growing. Simply, your foundations would be strong. And therefore, if your foundations are strong, we will be able to overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving. Do you know what's one of the signs of maturity? It's gratitude. Just think about that seven-year-old who can't go to Disneyland. Why? I don't like, I don't, why? I, I hate you. You don't love me. They're a little child, immature, spoiled little brat, self-centered person. Understandable, but that's who they are. If someone is six years, why can't I go? Then you're like, whoa, this is like the stroller incident, right? Like, whoa, that, that doesn't look good. But when you start maturing, you're like, you know what? What can we do? Something came up, so we could go another time. But I'm still thankful that you invited me. Do you, do you, do you see the difference? That's maturity. That's why I've been trying to encourage us as a church. Let's never lose that sense of gratitude and thankfulness. Even when we start praying, let that, let that be one of the first prayers that we lift up. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. The one thing, once again, it is Christ who gives us our calling. Therefore, he will keep us from falling. I really want this week to be filled with just fire for just to be lit up in our hearts so we can grow. And here's some things that might help you if you could just kind of think through this a little bit. First of all, as next steps, remind yourself daily of God's grace. Like every single morning you wake up, you're like, wow. I didn't die in my sleep. God, it's your grace. Thank you. When you're coming up the escalator and then you hear that the door is about to close and there's just that one little spot just fits perfectly for your body, whatever shape you have, that you just slide in and you're like, this is your grace. I saved three minutes. I'm telling you, if you could just see things with God's eyes, everything around you is his grace. The clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, the air that we breathe, everything is God's grace. Because we're not deserving. You don't study well, but then you get an A. Don't be like, huh, you know, you know. Just 
because I don't want to stand near you because some kind of, something's going to come and hit you. When something goes well at work, you just know it was just God who opened that door. It was the God who made that connection so you can get that business connect. It's all God. Every single day, just remind yourself it's your grace. The second thing is this, reposition your mind with the gospel paradigm. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something that you got to keep on reorienting every single time. It's, it's like the spiritual GPS. Rerouting because you keep on going in the wrong direction. Human paradigm, yes. And you're constantly going towards that direction. So you got to keep on rerouting, repositioning yourself. Okay, gospel paradigm. What I deserve is death. I don't deserve anything. But God in his infinite mercy... He loved me and he forgave me. And so now I rejoice. I'm so thankful. And now I can live for him and not for myself. Just rerouting back to the gospel. And lastly, reestablish godly habits. I want to encourage you with this because there's no other way. I wish you could take a little pill and eat it and then, boop, spiritual maturity. What's up? That would be so good. We'll make a lot of money that way. <laughs> you know? Because there's those info commercials. Some of you are like, I'm not really. I love Jesus. You know, can you imagine? We'll, we'll, we'll do really well. There is no shortcuts. I'm telling you right now. There's no, there's no keto diet. There's no all this stuff. There is no shortcut. Like they used to have those things you put around your waist and you're supposed to massage your, and, uh, and then you're supposed to get the six pack. That's a lie. <laughs> Some of you are like, I know I bought it last year. <laughs> There's no shortcuts. It's these godly habits reestablishing, just simply reading the Bible, loving Jesus through it, praying, not at all night, but just in your own time praying. Walking with the Lord, even as you're listening to even worship songs to think about Jesus. As you're on the MTR or on the bus, or as you're just walking, to just lift up some prayers for people that you see. Prayer walking. It, it's these simple godly habits that I believe. Memorizing verses. Hebrews 11, 6. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. John 15, 5. memorizing verses, just loving Jesus, God's going to do some great things. I'm going to stop now. I think I'm too excited today. I have a video, but we'll save it for some other time. So thank you, audio or visual video team, for making it. But we're going to save it. I think we have a lot of saved videos now. Just got to go with the flow, amen? Because I think the communion is more important than a video. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us. You've been sitting there for a while. Just, why don't you take, just take a deep breath. Just take one deep breath. And you can just exhale that out. See, even your breath, that, that inhaling of that air and breathing it in and exhaling, that's His grace. We don't deserve anything. And when you get to see things in that perspective that everything that I have, everything that I'm doing, everything about me, Lord, is just your grace, the undeserved favor. literally see things in HD 4K HD I mean it's going to be so clear no more black and white it is going to be so clear you'll have the sense of privilege you'll have the sense of just priority just urgency and 
you will even persevere because God is going to hold on to you. And that's when you can run hard after God. That's why it's, it's Christ who calls us. And it, it, will, it will be Christ. It will always be Christ who will hold us and keep us from falling. So as he's working in your life, just respond in obedience just to say, God, I cannot love you on my own strength. But just give me your grace so that I can love you back because you first loved me. And I pray that you will fall in love with Jesus again and again. Even though our hearts are always prone to wander, that he will draw us back. You will never be lost. No matter what you have done, no matter what you will do in the future, you will never be lost. You can never fall away. Even though you drift away, He will always bring things to bring you back. That is His grace. I pray that the gospel paradigm will be so much a part of who we are. That it will be a language that we speak so fluently that the world will say something is different about you. And we could point it all back to Jesus. We just sing that song, Amazing Grace. And for some of us, our chains that have held us for many years, those chains will be gone because of what He has done. Let's never forget. Jesus Christ is interceding for us even now. He's pleading for us. He's advocating for us. And when he looks at you and looks at me, he says, here's my son, here's my daughter. And here's Satan right there accusing you, saying all this stuff. And Jesus just lets out, as he's a lion of Judah, he lets out a roar and is silenced because we see the blood of Jesus covering us.